This is Photo Geek Weekly, episode 123, recorded on September 24th of 2020, uh, the Photo Geekery Show, where uh, I'm your host, Don Komarechka, and uh, we talk about techie stuff, nerdy, geeky photo news that comes across the uh, the, the news wire. If it, it's not really a wire anymore, I don't know why I use that <laughs> term, but uh, <laughs> uh, th- through the news channels, through the, the, the Wi-Fi and the internet at large, uh, it could be new, it could be old, uh, it could be ethical, legal, or the latest technology uh, that comes across. And I'm here to talk about it, usually with a guest. And I am so glad to be joined today by my fellow photo geek, Chris Marquart. Uh, Chris, how are you? It's been a while since we've chatted. I'm doing, I'm doing good under the circumstances, of course. Um, we do have wire. We have a copper coming into the house, DSL going over copper. So it is a wire. It, it is still a wire, not the same kind of news no, wire. No, no uh, galvanic connection. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Uh, so, you know, as I said, it's been a while since we've chatted. Uh, what's yeah. uh, what's happening in your world? Obviously, you know, you and I both <sighs> normally would be doing photo workshops throughout mm-hmm. the summer and the fall months. And that's obviously not happening in person uh, this year. Uh, what's keeping you busy? Well, after I, I had to, I had to cancel well i had to stop a photo tour in the middle of it back in oh, mid really? of march when the whole thing came down um we were in ethiopia with a group and halfway through we said germany was calling everyone back home the embassy told us get out of there so got the last one of the last flights out of ethiopia back to germany so um and after that hey f- six weeks of like being clueless what's what to do i mean this it was really tough for for the beginning and then i started pulling things together and then i started to to look into the future and to see uh to to try to suss out where this goes and then one thing of course came to the next and uh the 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 most important thing is uh, that i have added a lot of video production to what i do and i'm not talking zoom video low res bad sound kind of stuff but i have added to to four of my podcasts i've now added video so um with decent production values um there's tools available now that you can do that with and uh, it's something that i always wanted to do but never really got around to because work (laughs) yeah just too many other things going on i i'd love to do that too but you know i'm focusing on uh you know finishing up my uh my macro book book and uh i've been been finishing that book up i know yeah so uh i mean my daughter started junior kindergarten this week but started it remotely because we weren't going to be sending her uh to school because uh, you know, the world is chaos right now. My wife is a registered nurse and works in long-term care facilities, and oh. we don't want to have some infection vector come in. And I really don't think that um, the, the government here in Ontario is handling the school reopenings terribly well. Mm-hmm. So not to get political or anything like that, we just we're keeping her home. But uh, to do, they're using Google Classroom, but I might as well just call it Zoom uh, in terms of uh, the video conferencing that everybody is used to. Sure. And could you imagine getting 24-year-olds together on a zoom call you know junior kindergarten in the classroom in oh, oh 20, 20 24 year olds not 24 year olds okay yeah, yes I'm 24 like, year olds yeah so that uh, sounds it, tough <laughs> in a classroom setting it's like herding cats yeah. uh and when like there's audio feedback issues on somebody's microphone and then they don't mute themselves and you hear the parents talking in the background and just it, it's just 
I feel so bad for the teacher that's trying to make this work. But you know, kindergarten isn't that different. There's lots of chaos in kindergarten, right? Oh, true. As, as far it, as it, I remember, it, as far as I remember. So, um, this is true. I don't think it's it's that different, to be honest. No. And of course, of course, kids nowadays they love being in front of screens, right? Give them an iPad yeah. and they're quiet, you know. So exactly. <laughs> not that I have kids, and not that I would ever do that, but um, well, hey, you know, if if you need to like go on a, a a proper call or something, and you know, my wife is at work, or I've got to be cooking or doing something, it's the new you know, pacifier. I'll, yeah, yeah. Uh, I'll, I'll I'll sit down and, and queue up some magic school bus or you know something educational uh sure. some documentaries geared towards kids we're, we're very cautious about what we we let her watch but uh she just loves to draw too and so that's another fun pasta anyhow uh life gets in the way of all of this when everybody is always at home and you've got a four-year-old uh constantly uh wanting you to be her best friend so um, that that's been it's been life. Uh, it's been a good life. Uh, don't get me wrong. It just has been the least productive time in my professional career. <laughs> so so for me, that the video thing is one thing, and then one thing that came out of there uh, out of that is that my whole teaching uh, doesn't happen right now. So I built the platform to make it happen again in terms of uh, a platform that I call Photo Sensei, which is a uh, an online teaching platform, face-to-face -face virtual video session teaching real time. Um, so people can basically book me for a one or two hour uh, workshop session, custom made. It's really cool. Tailor made. Uh, so, you know, I, I do those too, although I've never made it into a formal platform. People just contact me and say, hey, you know, uh, here, here's the rate. This is what, uh, you yeah. know, what it costs per hour or. No, people uh, can go online know, and book and book sessions. one right there. I mean, it, it does work. It does work uh, remarkably sensei. well. Really so cool. sensei.photo is the URL and that's. Uh, yeah, uh, I, I'm gonna I'm gonna take a look at that uh, that that model because that I think could be very useful for a lot of people that want to bend my ear as well. Yes. Uh, so uh, video production and mm -hmm. uh, and your podcasts and, and all that. Before we I, usually I'll, I'll plug things middle, but we're already talking about it. Where, where do people <laughs> find this stuff? Um, it's it's all on my homepage, chrismarkworth.com. And as, as it's hard, tough to spell, I'm pretty sure you'll put it in the show notes. Yes, the, you can find those show notes at <laughs> photogeekweekly.com. Uh, all right, so let's get into some of the stories uh, of, of the week. Actually, some of these were from last week, but uh, I took the week off to uh, catch up on a myriad of other projects. And uh, this one crossed my radar, and it was really interesting. Uh, as soon as I saw the initial photograph and the concept and read it, I was just really excited about it. And I watched the video, and it kind of put a pin in the balloon. Uh, just kind of everything just... <laughs> deflated uh, immediately. But it's still interesting technology to talk about from MIT News. Um, engineers produce a fisheye lens that's completely flat. And it says the single piece of glass produces crisp panoramic images. Well, it's hard to call it a single piece of anything when it's made up of what would be called a meta lens, uh, which is a, a myriad of separate lenses all possibly made into the same material. It is flat. Um, this technology has been on the radar uh, on and off in the last couple of years. People have been making meta lenses and flat lenses for everything from astrophotography to uh, metrology, you know, measuring things and so on. 
and uh, usually their field of view has been fairly um, uh, consistent around, you know, 40 to 60 millimeters, sometimes a little bit wider for the telescope stuff. But this is a fisheye lens. Um, and uh, wh- what is your take on this new bit of, uh, let's call it experimental research? It's really all it is at this point. <sighs> you know, you know it, it, I've, my first thought was, and of course, I kind of know they're working with nanostructures and so on. But my, my first question was, is that kind of a fancy Fresnel lens of sorts? Uh, and it's not. I think it. They probably. We are probably looking at subwavelength structures that then will create some in, in, uh, interference to bend the light, that kind of stuff. So, um, that's that's my thoughts behind it. And then the video t- tells us that oh, it works in infrared, and it could Only. be modified <laughs> for visible light. It could be modified. Why, why, okay, infrared is simpler, it's easier because it's longer wavelengths, so they don't have to make the structures as small. Um, but visible light just throws so many more problems at you. The, the, the wide spectrum, many different wavelengths to, uh, to, to handle. And, and when they, and when they say in the video that the images were crisp and clear, while they are showing something on the screen with like tons of artifacts over it, that's not crisp and clear. So no, I mean to to a scientist, it might be definable. Probably, um, probably crisp and clear compared to everything that came before it. Maybe, <laughs> but but um, I think they, whoever. I mean, okay, who was overselling this? The scientists or the media? I guess the media were picking that up and going, oh, oh, oh another flat lens. We'll get clicks for that. I think that's that's what it feels like for me. Uh, so a r- research done uh, through MIT, funded by uh, DARPA under the Extreme program. Um, mm-hmm. So of course DARPA likes to play with lasers. I'm sure. Of um, but uh, uh, keep in mind that the light source for this was an infrared laser. Yeah, and that makes things so much simpler from the science point of view because yeah. typically lasers are one wavelength of light or a very yes. narrow band around one wavelength. Um, and so then, if you're trying to calculate interference patterns, yeah. You could design this in the visible spectrum if you use a blue laser, um, but you're still using a very narrow band of light. It's not the full spectrum, right? It's not a thing you will be able to put on your camera anytime soon. And it's a collimated light source, which is also far easier to deal with than anything else. And and, 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 they, they and make we're making into- fun of this. I mean, this is mean. We're mean because they have probably spent a lot of time to get this right. But I, I want to get, uh, get get to where the future is going to hold before uh, uh, before we end the story. But I still have to kick it a couple more times uh, yeah. <laughs> because the infrared camera that they're using already has a lens on it. You can see it in the video. It's a 25 millimeter f 2.3. I don't know exactly what kind of lens it is, but it has optics. So I this didn't is even a- notice that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so. I- so the, the, the camera that they're using has a lens on it to begin with, a traditional type of lens, if it can be ca- uh, calculated in, in that type of way. So really, what is this? This is an experiment. And yes, you can filter infrared uh, laser light through a test chart, through a metal lens, through another lens, and still get something visible on the other end, which really makes it less impressive. But We've been hearing about these metal lenses for quite some time. Uh, And I think that especially in small spaces like smartphones, where we're looking for new ways to evolve that type of technology, you might find a use case once that type of technology matures. 
Um, where do you see the future of optics? This is sort of the, the larger question about where things are going to be going because people are experimenting with these periscope style lenses and smartphones. You've mm-hmm. got, uh, like, like you mentioned, like a Fresnel lens, which is really old tech, but we're seeing diffractive optics technology take hold and make smaller, more compact and still very sharp lenses. Uh, are we going to go in all of these directions or is one going to take hold? I believe firmly in uh, in that they will use computation to fix the artifacts. So you have you have uh, today you already have cameras with relatively bad lenses on them with uh, weird geometric geometric issues and stuff, and the computation fixes that in real time. And if, as as long as you can define the shortcomings of a lens like this. Um, and bend it into the right shape, then why not? So I, I, I think we'll, they'll meet in the middle. The lenses will come to a certain point and the computation will add machine learning and whatever and throw that at, the, at what comes out of the lens and the final picture will probably be decent. Uh, let, let's hope so. Uh, if you can call it, I don't know if you could call it a photograph at that point. I mean, as soon as you start getting into some uh, extreme manipulations of the data, uh, once it's been, uh, you know, <laughs> transferred from photons to electrons, and then ones and zeros. Um, and it's not you that's doing the manipulation. It's just the computer algorithms and so on and so forth. But that they're are already doing, doing that. it. Yeah, well, they are. I, there, there's no question about that. Yeah. And but but when I when I see you know some really nice sort of portrait mode images taken with my wife's iPhone 11 of of my daughter um, or just the the family snaps that we do, they're wonderful images. It's hard to call it a photograph in a traditional sense, although that has always been an evolving term. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Photography is in its biggest shift anyway right now. So. Um, I think we'll we'll still call it photography in the future. Uh, it's the same way we call these slabs in our pockets phones, even though we're not really <laughs> using them to make phone calls anymore. Yeah, yeah. I I rarely. I I mean, I call my grandmother uh, on 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 a weekly basis, just about. That's maybe the only person I really have a con- uh, phone conversation with because like we're chatting digitally over the uh, the internet right now, and it's a much more personal experience. And it's about- we still have save icons that look like floppy disks. I mean. <laughs> <laughs> This is true. This is true. Um, so we'll so, call it photography for sure. <laughs> uh, we, we will. And it's just going to evolve. And we will be photographers no matter how you define the term. Uh, and the, the tools that we use are constantly evolving and changing. And there's new tools to talk about every week, uh, it seems. One of those tools uh, that was announced on uh, September 15th was that Sony, uh, they've decided to come out with a, they call it a travel-friendly A7C, 24 megapixel full-frame mirrorless camera. And Mm -hmm. uh, this comes hot on the heels of uh, Panasonic uh, announcing the Lumix S5, which is also a very compact full-frame mirrorless camera. One of the things about the Sony um, uh, lens mount that I've always been a bit hesitant to accept is... It looks like they made it for an APS-C sized sensor and then somehow was able to jam a full frame sensor inside of it. Because if you're looking at the actual uh, lens mount itself, you can't see the corners of the sensor, which means you have <laughs> that, that couldn't have been designed by choice. You have um, to squeeze I, the picture through somehow. Yeah. <laughs> and so you have to, you know, massage your lenses to, to, to fix that. And, and so the optical designs might suffer. I don't really think that they've suffered greatly. People shoot with the Sony cameras and the lenses on that platform with great success. Oh. Um, but 
I never thought of a potential benefit for that smaller lens mount. If you wanted to have a full frame camera that had the smallest possible body, you would have to have the smallest possible lens mount around that full frame sensor. And so looking at what the A7C is, that kind of hits the mark on that, wouldn't you say? Um, it does. I mean, for, for me, um, I was always happy to see small full frame cameras come out. I'm a full frame guy and that's probably not going to change. So um, the I think the first one that really made, got me interested was the Sigma FP, which is... Yeah, I think ergonomically a bit challenged, but um, but it's tiny and it is a full frame camera, and uh, I think it appeals more to videographers. Though I'm not sure the still photography on it. I've I've never really tried it, but I read a lot about it. So a lot of I, I'm still waiting for the Foveon version of whatever Sigma comes out in the yeah, element because Foveon that's just different story. <laughs> it's a different story. But, well, and they've had a lot of issues bringing it up to a full frame sensor size, yeah. and that's why we haven't seen it yet. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the and the Sony A7C, um, I mean, it's it's a it's tiny little bigger than the Sigma FP. We're talking like a, a centimeter here and a centimeter there, and but it looks like it has. Uh, it's from an ergonomic point of view, it's much better. It has a nice grip as opposed to the FP being just a box. Um, um, it's a tiny little bit heavier, but hey, it has in-body stabilization in that tiny body. I mean, isn't that wild? It's so, amazing. Well, yeah. and I, I, I look at it, okay, 24 megapixels, that's more than enough. Uh, I mean, I like shooting with more when it's an option, but on a small body, uh, that's perfectly fine. Oh, totally. $1,800 US price point, which is, yep. uh, you know, it's it's in the same ballpark as the Lumix S5. I don't know what the Sigma FP is, is priced at at the moment. but Exactly uh, the same. So they're all in that same range, right? Yeah. So a uh, hundred dollars here or there isn't going to sway somebody uh, away from a product. It's not that uh, elastic of of a price. So uh, in that, if we look at the specs, you've got sensor shift. Uh, they say that uh, image stabilization rating at, at five stops um, with a five axis stabilizer. Um, of course, we've got all the standard stuff that you would expect from Sony. It doesn't have the highest resolution electronic viewfinder. I think it's 2.3 <laughs> There's million no space dots. For it. <laughs> uh, yeah, well, it's tiny. And so, yeah. uh, so you, you have a, a lower resolution viewfinder. Um, you've got a, uh, a fully articulating screen on the back, which is nice. And we're seeing that from just about everybody now as well. But it's only a, a, a sub one, uh, one megapixel screen on the back. So again, lower resolution all around. You know, you're not getting all of the luxurious components in that but you're also not paying for that one thing that does set itself aside from things in in the uh, competition is 10 frames per second continuous shooting which i think you can get, get up to seven on the s5 uh is it a big jump to go from seven to ten for most people i, I don't know you're going to start mm -hmm. arguing and going back and forth around the specs and and the ecosystem and and what have you um do you think that a camera such as this or the Sigma FP, the Lumix S5, anything in that product class um, is going to uh, is going to be a big seller right now. What I mean, do people spend money right now? That, that's um, the question. The latest the latest statistics uh, that I've seen was that uh, the people are saving more money than ever before because COVID. You know, you don't know. Yeah. A lot of people don't know if they will have a job in a, in half a year. So the question is. Uh, who's who's shelling out for a new camera? I mean, people are kind of trying to get to a normal life, but then the infection rates go up again, and then we lock them down again. So I, I, the thing is, 
there is it the thing is still here right the pandemic is still here and it will be here for a while and so so spending 1800 bucks i mean for some people that might be an easy choice but um i know a lot of people who are putting those uh purchases on the back burner right now uh, yes but other people um RVs, recreational vehicles, have their sales have been at an all-time high. Of course. Uh, so too have things like uh, lumber to build a deck in your backyard yeah. and home improvement items, uh, barbecues. You know, the, people are spending money on certain things yeah, to help but they're them spending enjoy money their on, life. Yeah, but they are spending money on things that they can do at home or they, where, where they are not with other people, like an RV. Yeah. Um, so a camera... Mm, uh, so... so, so th- th- Let's let's look at what kind of photographers there are. There are people who have a new, who have a camera and want a new camera, but don't really need it. That's probably a seven C. Oh yeah, let me buy that while I have two other cameras and I could use this because <laughs> it's smaller and uh, carry it around more. Um, and then there are people who need a new camera who don't have one who are just getting into the business. Is that a good or maybe their camera's camera? ten years old and and really it's not up or to needs replacing? The, the, yeah, that would be yeah. the third kind. So so. Um, if you are in the market for a new camera, is that your beginner camera or would you rather go for something, I don't know, more established or maybe even a used one? So. I remember when the um, uh, the Canon EOS Rebel, uh, Digital Rebel came out, uh, the I first that, one, yes. which was like 15 years ago or so. Uh, mm-hmm. It was six megapixels, plastic body, but it, it made waves because it was the first um, interchangeable lens digital SLR that was sub a thousand dollars. I bought and, that the first day it was available in Germany. Yes, and uh, I mean I, I bought one for thirty dollars on eBay with free shipping from <laughs> Japan because I don't even I think the shipping might have cost more than than the thirty dollars. But uh, I, just as a test to experiment to see how things have have changed, I, I did a magazine article about that. But um, that was a. Uh, a a very big milestone to get people into photography when you could bring the cameras below that thousand dollar price point and then on mass uh it revolutionized the way that we understood digital photography because everybody could could grab it eighteen hundred dollars is not that price point no uh you know and we've had inflation since then you know a decade and a half ago too to to make that uh, sub a thousand dollars to be much more than that in today's dollars so we we now have this camera uh, that is maybe it's on par. The inflation doesn't quite match, but it's not for beginners. Beginners don't buy a camera like this. Beginners use their smartphone. Uh, beginners use what's already at their disposal in their pocket. And so to make this a really small, carryable, convenient camera, um, my big concern is no matter how good it is, it, they might not sell a whole lot of them right now. Uh yeah, I don't know. But well, it, it but but then on the other hand, I I really compare it with the Sigma FP, and um, this will definitely sell better than the Sigma FP because Sigma FP is their first camera, right? And mm-hmm. uh, Sony has a track record of putting out things. I remember I, I grew up with Sony uh, Hi-Fi, and they were so good at miniaturizing things. The, the I had a Discman, I had a Walkman, and that kind of stuff. So um, they're good at that. They know their miniaturization. So um, right. from that point of view, it'll definitely sell better than a few others, I would think. But yeah, again, and it's just not a, a beginner uh, camera. 
And a few things on the specs, shoots 4K video at 30 frames per second, which I believe is standard these days. Um, flash sync speed is only one uh, one sixtieth of a second, not uh, one two hundredth mm-hmm. or faster. And that's typically what you would get on a, on a, a more beginner camera, or I guess it was common in micro four thirds cameras as well. Uh, built-in wireless, uh, micro HDMI. So even if you are uh, shooting video, I'd love to see Lens Rentals do a teardown of this to see uh, if those external ports are on a daughter board or on the main <laughs> board inside the camera. Because as we've talked about in previous episodes, um, if you break one of those ports, uh, then it's a very expensive repair. So to use yeah. a camera like this, you wouldn't be typically uh, you know, using it professionally and those ports are probably gonna be seldomly used. Um, uh, SDXC up to UHS two. So you've got a fast card slot. I believe it's only a single card slot, but again, you know, you're, you're getting, uh, a smaller body and everything has to get more compact around that. And so it's Sony, thank you to for- be a pro camera. Exactly. And so all the features are saying it's not a pro camera, but you're still going to dish out $1,800 for it, where if you look for the Sigma FP, it's designed for, in some ways, a professional environment because it's designed to be modular, to build a cage around it and to do a larger setup. And the same thing in terms of specs, uh, raw video output coming to the Lumix S5 at around the same price point. Um, To have a camera at that level, but it's cutting some corners where you'd have more features on another product one way or another. Do you, is there going to be a, um, a delusion of grandeur? Uh, I guess is the technical term where people are, are going to fancy themselves as a professional or a future professional and then just see this as as not enough uh, in terms of the specs or just enough because it's small, it's tiny, you might already be invested in the system or you're just happy that it has such an ecosystem around it in terms of accessories and lenses and so on and so forth. I think Sony's going to do okay with this camera, um, but I just worry that the price point versus the features doesn't make it that sellable. Yeah, I'm with you there. And and that about uh, puts a pin in that story. Uh, Putting pins in all these stories as we go through. (laughs) No, Uh, we're not going to put a pin in. We're not going to put a pin in the next one. (laughs) No, this this one is actually quite nice. And I'm so glad that I can see. uh, Was it last year? Or I think it was last year. Time was a very... Sometime in 2019. Yeah, uh, has a very fluid sense right now. I was thinking, you remember two years ago when Australia was on fire? Well, that was actually in January of this year. Uh, (laughs) 2020. So, could so, could someone put 2020 on the dump, please? Yeah. So anyhow, um, I think it was last year where Tetanol was facing some very serious issues because uh, they were uh, traditionally a business-to-business company, and yeah. uh, they had some big orders that fell through, and uh, and they were looking at uh, at all of the red uh, financially, and just couldn't make it work uh, in that same model anymore, and they were thinking at the time. And I was very hopeful that this transition would happen, that they would switch from a B2B to a B2C market business to consumer directly to us as the end users of the product, that they would market themselves and somehow come through. And it looks like they have. I'll just read the opening paragraph here. And then I want your thoughts, Chris, because I know you shoot film too. Um, After facing imminent closure, Tetanol is back with a vengeance uh, and has relaunched their online shop. And I checked it out. There's uh, some cool stuff in there. Um, this uh, This is fantastic news for analog photographers as Tetanol has been producing critical photochemicals since 1847, making Tetanol the oldest active company in the photo industry. And one of the few 
actual manufacturers of the raw chemicals that other people were rebranding, such as Ilford and, and so on and so forth. So what are your thoughts on this news that Tetanol is back, they're marketing to us directly, and will you vote with your wallet and buy some of their new uh, offerings? Definitely. So uh, Tetanol, by the way, the oldest ph photographic company in the world, they date back to 1847. So they have been with photography right from the start, founded in Berlin, Germany. So um, they, they, okay, I kind of knew that this was coming because um, when the news broke last year that uh, Tetanol was um, not doing well, um, they actually already went went quite transparent about um, their plans in several podcasts around film photography. So I heard um, them, people from Tetanol, talk about uh, their plans and so on. So I, I kind of knew fairly early on um, what they were planning. And I actually, Tetanol couldn't really die. I mean, they were impor too important to die. If we look at... Um, I mean, they, they are possibly, probably the biggest photochemical OEM making chemistry for ACFA, for Kodak. Like they, they make 30% of Kodak's chemistry. Um, for Ilford, they, they, um, they also invented like things like the, the, the E6 three bath process, these kind of things. So they, they have a lot of history. They have a lot of, um, knowledge and a lot of good connections and the fact that they were almost killed by some orders not going through or some 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 su suppliers not delivering or something like that um was a bit of a painful thing but um i'm totally in favor of them going to a, a doing a b2c thing and um i'm definitely looking forward to, to testing some of their stuff yeah well, and uh, looking to the future, um, uh, this is this is going to be, I think, a really big move for me. I, I checked their store; it's not out yet. It's still in development. They're finishing. It says Tetanol has nearly finished the development of effervescent tablet forms of E6 yes. and C41 developer. Now yes. that that's the biggest news of this whole thing. I, yes, I'm glad Tetanol's back. We can get the same stuff that we've always yeah. gotten with a different label they on it. They hinted to that last year, and I was like, oh, finally. One of the biggest things for me is, I mean, yeah, I, I can, I can like have a bunch of uh, uh, ectochrome film here, but I, I, yes, I can get the chemistry and I can get it in powdered form, but I got to make big batches of it. And then I use it once because I don't shoot film very often. Then the rest of it goes bad and I feel bad. So then I don't want to do it again. And because I don't want to do it again, I don't go out and I, I just don't shoot. Um, but if I knew that I could just make a batch of developer for a role or you know up to three rolls of film or whatever it happens to be and do that and then just not feel bad about wasting a whole bunch of extra stuff have everything measured have it easier and more convenient and have a longer shelf life for all of the stuff i haven't yet used that to me i think is going to be a bigger game changer and yeah. it might make me shoot more film yeah, definitely. I mean, the, the we we have we have chemistry in different forms here because we do develop and and uh, uh, some of that is in powdered form. Like our fixer is in powdered form because that won't won't go bad anytime soon. And so you, you can always have something here in case you need it. And in tablet form, I believe Tetanol used to do that. They had a tablet based chemistry many years ago. And it just wasn't that interesting to people anymore. But now, I mean, bring it back. 
I'm all for yeah, it. Well, especially because people like me that have some affinity for the old mechanical cameras, but you know, mm-hmm. you don't want the inconvenience of uh of not if you don't pick it up every day if you don't shoot with it every day or you know once a week once a month kind of thing if i want to pick up that camera and shoot with it a handful of times a year those tablets make a lot more sense and i think that there's a lot of photographers that want to dabble in film to that same extent Uh, speaking of film chris um what's your favorite film to shoot right now Oh, it it has been Tri-X and it will be Tri-X for a long time. I just I'm just a fan of the grain and of the of the handling of it. So Kodak Tri-X. Well, and so you can develop that in any number of chemicals oh, and yeah. chemistry that uh, I mean so many people not just tetanol manufacture black and white chemistry. You can you can technically develop it in coffee. Uh, I've seen some people do silly things like that and in herbs. Well, I wouldn't someone recently yeah. developed that in herbs that have some phenolic stuff in them. So, yeah. Yeah, and yeah, it's it not recommended, but uh, <laughs> if all of the photochemical companies go away, I'm sure you could find something hiding under your sink uh that you could use to develop black and white film at at the very For least. color it's a bit it's a different story. It's a totally different story. Oh yes, it's yeah. very specific chemicals and specific temperatures uh also therein. Although uh E6 is a little bit uh less problematic when it comes to the the color temperatures uh, or the um uh, the temperatures of the chemicals. Uh, I believe it's something around 24 degrees Celsius for E6. I, don't, I can't remember. Uh, I've never can, actually developed E6 myself. You can do C41 at other temperatures, temperatures than like 37 degrees. There's uh, the, the recipe in the in the booklet. Uh, they give you like three or four different choices there, but um, I've always done the fast and hot one because I all right because I can. Well, quicker. there you go. Uh, it's quicker. And I'm sure a lot of one hour photo labs, if there are any of those still in existence, uh, would try to get things out quicker too. Uh, so Tetanol's back. Hooray. And uh, go, if you are a film shooter and, and you just, maybe you don't need chemicals right now, just go and buy something from them. Just do, do them a favor uh, and get some cash flow coming in so that a company like this can continue to develop, to develop the, the amazing things uh, that is uh, on the horizon. And, uh, and it's not expensive stuff. I mean, you can buy, uh, I don't think that there's, uh, yeah, it just barely goes over 20 euro for some of the things on the list here, but you get boxes uh, of, of stuff for 12 to 15 euro on their website right now. Um, so absolutely, uh, throw, uh, throw some money at them, show them some love, especially right now when everybody seems to be hurting in the, uh, in the commercial space. <laughs> True. So let's, let's go into the, uh, the final story here, which I just, I find an interesting, uh, paradigm shift if I can use that overused term, but I think this applies, um, from Petapixel, the reporting that Ikea used a computer generated imaged uh, influencer, CGI uh, influencer, uh, that uh, as a model for its new ad campaign. Now, this campaign was in Japan, and Japan has usually been a bit more free thinking uh, than the Western world in terms of, uh, you know, using uh, non-human, uh, human-like characters uh, in, in a variety of different things, whether it be advertising or TV shows, and so on. Um, so, you see this person. Let's call it that. Uh, that's not a real person. Um, and, uh, it is living, uh, amongst uh, all sorts of Ikea products, you know, that everything in their room is completely decked out in, in Ikea, uh, furniture and rugs and so on and so forth, artwork on the walls. Um, and it's basically like a big brother type scenario where you're watching this, uh, this person live their life. 
And apparently, we, we don't know specifics, but uh, it looks very much like it was a real person uh, that was living this life. And they used a uh, some of the new and upcoming deep fake technology to replace that person's uh, head with that of somebody that is non-real, um, somebody that is a computer-generated um, artificial person. Uh, and that apparently is acceptable and somehow a very interesting curiosity that gets everybody's attention, at least in Japan. So what do you think about this, Chris? And where do you think that ad campaigns are going to take it in the future? So looking at that uh, Petapixel story, the CGI Instagram influencer in air quotes uh, calls herself what is called Emma, Emma Graham. That's her Instagram. And she has 263,000 followers there. So um, I think that that virtual person was there before uh, IKEA made a contract with that, with the people behind that person to to use her as a... I as didn't a, notice that. that. That's a really yeah. good point to make. That's um, the first thing. The, se the second thing is, um, have you ever heard of Hatsune Miku? I think that's how you pronounce it. That's I, the, I believe so, yeah. That's the Japanese pop star, the 16-year-old Japanese pop star hologram who does not exist, and she's up on stage, and she, she's, she, she uh, does concerts in front of tens of thousands of teens she has opened for lady gaga in 2014 she's done like a happy remix with pharrell williams she i'm saying she it's a team yeah. it's a company behind that but um it it kind of becomes normal and how is that different from a cartoon i mean yes you can make it more photorealistic more real looking but how is that different from let's say they're like the gorillas who are a cartoon fronted uh band so yeah i i would not go and watch a cartoon in in a in, in an amphitheater you know to to, to be tens of thousands me. of kids do that and they this love is it. true <laughs> so uh not my demographic but okay so th this is happening now and apparently it's been happening for a while um do you think that it'll be adopted in western culture and what does oh, that sure. mean for our um, influencer model, if you can be a corporation that just makes somebody to be the perfect niche for your product, uh, to to hit your perfect target audience by saying, okay, our ideal customer is this, you outline it, and then you create a virtual uh, non-real entity to that audience, is That's that where we're going to be going? That's already happening in in other yeah. ways. If you look at what Facebook does, um, they they tailor the the feeds for everyone so exactly. The whole online advertising space um, targets things in ways and 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 uses every trick in the book of psychology to get you addicted to I don't know games and clicking on them and buying expensive jewels and stuff virtual so this is this is just another expression of that this is i'm, I'm totally not surprised about ikea using a virtual influencer for their I'm not, I'm not against it i mean yeah. it's it seems like it's going to be the way of the future uh but and then i also just, just just look three four years in the future and we start having those glasses on our faces and then those virtual influencers are just our, our new friends uh, sitting next to us at the breakfast table and we have a nice chat and uh. <laughs> i think that there will be a, a generational uh disparity here in oh, the totally. acceptance of such things uh totally i mean I, my, my daughter will be much more accepting of this than I would be at any point in my, uh, in, in my lifetime. Uh, it's just a, a stylistic interpretation of 
human interaction and what that oh, actually and it's means. Also, very scary. I mean, uh, the, the, it's someone, totally someone like an having... episode out of uh, an episode out of Black Mirror here. And you look, know, look they mentioned at, that in the article. Look at the. I mean, uh, COVID will not be the last pandemic, so we'll have lockdowns in the future. So you need friends around you. You want people around you. And uh, <laughs> my my own experiences from VR, from going into a virtual world made as clumsy as it is right now, uh, is that you can have that feeling you're really there. It can be very, very immersive, even in, in its in its heavy, clumsy, uh, uncomfortable forms that it comes in right now. But just imagine that stuff to get lighter and less intrusive, and then it becomes part of our normal fabric. That might even be coming next month. Uh, the, the company uh, called Leia uh, that made the screen for the red hydrogen smartphone mm -hmm. uh, has announced another product called the LumaPad. And uh, the uh, L-U-M-E-P-A-D. Uh, uh, and it's like a, a tablet-type device that has a second generation of the screen technology that they had put in the hydrogen. And mm -hmm. uh, apparently it will have a sensor to track the exact uh, position of somebody's head to also change the imagery based on the angle to the screen and so on. Um, and that's, again, now that's lighter. That's something in your hand. You don't need to put it right up against your face. If something like that type of technology becomes ubiquitous, you know, it's just, it's in every device, whether or not the content that you're viewing uh, has that immersive depth or not, if it's always there, then it becomes more likely that people generate content for it. Uh, mm -hmm. And then, and that will, I think, take us to that next level of, okay, yeah, every TV is a, uh, a 3D TV and you don't need glasses. If you're watching something in 2D, it's fine. If it's in 3D, well, it's going to jump up at you. And if you can press a button to turn that off, if you don't like it. Um, and once we hit that marker, I think the interactions with uh, virtual worlds and virtual people uh, will become uh, much more important. And I don't or, see that being real any more. Ima imagine, people, sure. imagine you and I sitting across from a table from each other. And it looks like I'm just looking at a, uh, a wooden frame and you're on the other side of that. No, you could be there as real as, I mean, I couldn't touch you, but we could talk and we'd, we'd be like two people in the same room while you are in Canada and I'm in Germany. Uh, I, I think that this type of technology is less than a decade away, um, at least Definitely. from at least from existing. I don't think it'll be commonplace, but at least from existing, we're going to have uh, that ability uh, with a price tag on it. You know, it might be a, a huge price tag. You, you can buy like 16K TVs right now if you really wanted to. There's no way to feed data into them, uh, you know, but they might be able to display an image from an internal source. Uh, so from that perspective, the technology exists. As soon as it becomes consumerized at a much lower price point, then that's where it truly becomes interesting. And, uh, well, uh, so we have virtual people, we'll have virtual interactions moving forward. And this pandemic, I think, is pushing technology uh, in a way that uh, we've seen huge influxes of virtual communication. Uh, you know, anybody that makes a webcam, they can't make them fast enough. Um, anybody that is in the uh, communication industry, like, you know, whether it be uh, Zoom or Google or Microsoft, and you're bringing up all of this new software for us to interact this way, um, our lives will be forever changed. Our generation won't get it, but the ones coming uh, next will see the world a lot differently than we do right now. 
Yes. And that is our final story. Before we get to the picks of the week, let's plug you again, Chris. So great to have you on the podcast. Uh, and uh, your uh, content, everything that you do can be found at chrismarquart.com, correct? Yes. That's, that, that links to everything, to the videos, to the podcast, to the books, to well, whatever. And, uh, of course, to your social media, uh, that where we can find your musings online as they happen, sometimes in English <laughs> and sometimes in German. Um, mixed, yeah. <laughs> it's all good. Uh, so that'll be all at photogeekweekly.com where you can find Chris and keep up uh, with what's wh what he's up to. And, you know, if you're doing video on these podcasts, I'm going to have to check that out to see exactly how you're doing it. Because I'll, uh, I'll give you the, all the secrets. They're not secret, but I'll, I'll, I'll explain the tools to you because there's some really cutting edge, amazing stuff out there in the open source right now. Uh, that used to be uh, incredibly expensive. You'd have to buy like expensive hardware or very expensive software licenses that were designed for broadcast studios at large corporations. We're right? talking full HD 1080p video at 30 frames with a latency across the pond of under 300 milliseconds. That's uh, I, that's I exciting, remember, isn't it? <laughs> I, I still remember watching broadcasts where there was a satellite uplink, mm -hmm. and the uh, three second person, <laughs> person in the studio uh, would ask a question, and then there's just people standing and staring. Oh, or or they have one hand on their earpiece, and then four seconds later they start answering. Yeah, mm -hmm. yeah, uh, and and that. Th those satellite uplinks cost millions of dollars. <laughs> it's yeah. the only way they, you could have done it then. And they were really tightly timed. Oh, we have we have to finish this up. Our satellite's gone away. Yeah. <laughs> so uh. maybe that leads into the pick of the week that we have for you. You sent me a link to GitHub. And I always love when somebody sends me to GitHub because yeah. it's always an interesting open source project that, uh, that grabs my attention. It so what, what am I looking at here? Well, what, what you're looking at is uh, remote control, hardware remote control for Lightroom. And, you know, a lot of people love the, the loop deck. We're talking 200 bucks or up. Um, or the Palette Gear, which is a modular version of that, um, at really high price points. And then at one point, some someone programmed MIDI 2LR, which is a, a MIDI, MIDI to Lightroom converter for windows and mac so you can use midi, MIDI interfaces the, the 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 music, the music. Uh, interface standard and right. uh, and then people would start using midi controllers that are made for music like a behringer midi controller or something like that um, and use it for lightroom uh, and but again we're we're talking either an investment or it not being really specific for photography and uh, and then this is a project that came out of the community around my German podcast, Happy Shooting. So um, there's a few listeners there who are really into that stuff. And one and one told me, hey, it would be so easy to do that. It, you just need a bit, bit of soldering and a, a board. And, and I was like, yeah, sure. <laughs> it's easy for people who can do that. So I challenged them to, um, to make this into a project. And they have a group of six, seven people have uh, worked on that for the last five, six weeks. And so they have made open source, it's open source hardware. What, they, what they've done is they've designed this thing. Um, you can get the files for the board like you, you, that, that you then send and, and to, to get someone a who makes circuit it. Board, yeah, P PCBs cheap. are it's so cheap. easy to make now. It used to cost, uh, you know, at least in the four figures to get yeah, a prototype no. PCB. 
we're talking we're talking 50 bucks for 10 or something like that i mean yeah. really not expensive um there's a bill of materials like what what switches and what uh what uh, potentiometers are the right ones to get where to get them um there's a quick start guide there's uh it, it all it's all based on the teensy processor which is an arduino compatible very small very cheap processor um it, they have the firmware ready for that that does the communication so that thing speaks usb so um they have the they even have 3d files if you want to 3d print your case around it I mean, you could so use cool. the you could use the board as um, yeah, people are not seeing this, but I'm I I, I I have it here in the I'm holding it into the camera between the two of us. Um, it is I, I use it just just the board with the buttons on it. I didn't even put a case around it. Um, there's uh, MIDI to LR uh, mapping profiles available. There's a wiki that explains everything. And if you if you can solder, if you have a soldering iron, um, then that there's no that it's easy it's simple you put that thing on there you've put the firmware on this all explained on the website and then you have for just a few bucks you have a lightroom hardware remote control and if, if you if you don't want to screw up this project buy a soldering iron buy a 20 dollar uh kit uh you know heath kits used to be something common when yeah, i was little growing blinking up lights and, leds uh, that kind of stuff and, yeah and practice with that uh, you'll, you'll probably mess it up a little bit. Your soldering won't be great if you haven't done it before. But if you want to develop a new skill, that ends up being very useful. It's a perfect when COVID project, you know. And now, now this, this is the MVP. This is the minimum viable product that, that they've made after after doing interviews with people and finding out how many buttons it should have and how they should be placed and that kind of stuff. And uh, they are now thinking about an advanced version of that. And the the options are endless. We're talking ideas like motor faders, for example. Just imagine you open your Lightroom and the faders on that thing go, whoot, 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 and they reflect exactly what's <laughs> on your screen. Um, they we're, we're talking a display. We're talking lots of additions that are now possible, and they are still checking away. But the MVP is ready. Uh, version 1.1 is ready. The version 1.0 had a one bug, so it needs an additional wire. But um, yeah, it's a... Uh, it comes so from cool. and it comes from the community around one of my podcasts, and it's so amazing. I'm so happy about that. And you've got a bunch of passionate people that are working oh, yes. on this. And as you said, if this is the MVP and it's fully functional, if this thing had uh, you know motor controlled uh, pots on it and and everything, <laughs> just uh, I, I would think to myself, I. And, and maybe customizable. Maybe you could uh, build it to your own sensibilities. There might be different PCB revisions with more or less or, um, you know, a bigger or a smaller, more spacing or less spacing, depending on the, the size of a case you might want to put it in, how you want to operate it one hand or two. Uh, my mind is already a flurry with the ideas uh, of where and, you could take a project like this. And it's a group of Germans doing this, but the website and the, and the instructions are all available in English. So no worries about that. Language is oh, no, perfect. not a problem. So, uh, the, we'll be able to check that out at uh, the show notes at photogeekweekly.com. I'm not going to rhyme off the URL here. It's too much. And there's a German <laughs> word. Um, so... <laughs> <laughs> but I, I'll go to my pick, and this is something, it's another COVID project of mine. Uh, I had um, for many years a collection of old computer processors just sitting in a drawer. Now, when I was in high school, uh, my school was, uh, we were refurbishing some computers that were just going to be scrapped and giving them to students that couldn't afford one to go off to, to college uh, back then. But some of them were just too antiquated and they were just going to be thrown out. 
And so uh, I harvested a bunch of you know processors and RAM chips and things from there just because I, I was feeling nostalgic about that kind of stuff. And ever since then, they have been sitting in a drawer. And that drawer is now in my cold storage room. And I was cleaning up and I discovered it again uh, amongst some like 20 megabyte hard drives and other things that I don't know why I kept. But um, I thought, you know, I've always seen these really interesting photos of um, of the the silicon dye of these processors. You know, they're used in marketing campaigns and so on and so forth. But why don't I try to make one of those myself? And one chip in particular that I found was an old Pentium 60, 60 megahertz Pentium, was oh, the, the first Pentium <laughs> chip. And uh, they, they made this on a fairly large manufacturing process, an 800 nanometer uh, process. And so the actual silicon on this thing is actually quite big. Um, and it, it might measure like oof, an inch and a bit by an inch and a bit. Uh, so easy to photograph with any standard macro lens or maybe not even and just crop in a bit. And there's some crazy colors. If you get it on just the right angle of light, it's quite beautiful to expose it. You have to do the opposite of soldering. You got to take solder off of a little, uh, there's just a little metal plate on the back. And so I heated that up with a uh, heat gun. Uh, and when the solder was uh, malleable, I just kind of scraped it all off. And then with a tiny little uh, screwdriver, you just kind of do a little tap with a hammer in the tiny corner and pop, comes right off. <laughs> uh, and any chips uh, that are pre um, uh, Pentium 2 type class, uh, so the Pentium Pros, Pentiums, 486s, 386s, and so on, uh, most of them are very easy to just pop the bottom of the chip off. Uh, the later Pentiums with MMX tech, um, which was a big thing, and um, they encase the silicon in resin, so you can't get at it without using nasty chemicals and things. Mm -hmm. um, but those earlier chips, which you could find for between 5 and $20 on eBay, they can be a nice little photo project. Uh, in fact, the funny thing is the prices of these are actually going up right now, not because they're worth anything for the technology, but because the price of gold is going up. And the amount of gold used on these old processors was quite substantial. So a lot of people are selling them for gold reclamation. Uh, and uh, if you want to you know, pick one up for whatever that the value of the gold is and explore what it has to offer photographically, then you could resell it for the gold content, I guess, uh, down the road. And you've lost nothing in the process. You've just gained a photograph. And so there's a just a fun photo idea for you to explore. That's cool. That sounds fun. Yeah. And you, you get, yeah, you get the colors. The, that's like, that's like diffraction grading there, which gives you all the weird rainbows and stuff. Exactly. And uh, the, the types of colors would vary based on the, the light source. Yeah. Uh, you know, a lot of LED lighting doesn't emit a whole lot of blue. It's a bit uh, like a hologram, right? It's kind of like a hologram. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, it, it has that feel to it. And and so I would, I'd, I've taken a bunch of uh, flashlights and I'd hit them from slightly different angles to get different awesome. colors coming on and combining them together. It almost becomes a, a piece of artwork at mm -hmm. the end of that. Uh, and especially with the high resolution modes on cameras, if you get it straight on to your a camera sensor in a single shot, you can generate like a 200 megapixel image and just go in and explore literally every single transistor on the thing. If you are bored cool. out of your mind and you're looking for a fun project, 
hey, that's something that uh, I'm going to work a picture of that stuff into my book. Uh, some way, Very somehow, cool. it'll probably be uh, towards the epilogue section of it. But that is my pick of the week. And that winds us down for this episode of Photo Geek Weekly. Uh, again, thank you to everybody that listens. Uh, this is a show that I do out of the, uh, you know, just the passion of doing it. Uh, it is fun to talk with fellow photographers on a weekly basis. Um, and if you have any suggestions for stories, guests, any feedback on the stuff that we've talked about, please send me an email or put something in the comments. Always happy to hear from you folks as the audience. And just before we we finally sign off, uh, I, I haven't done this in a while, but uh, I'm going to I'm going to thank the people uh, that have been contributing to the Folding at Home project that I've mentioned earlier on, uh, uh, especially during the pandemic. Uh, Folding at Home is a is a process that. Uh, uh, that will use your computer cycles, your spare computer processing power uh, using Markov state models, which imagine this like a game of Plinko. You don't need to do the entire calculation. You just have to calculate where a little puck goes from one peg to another peg. And that small bit of a calculation uh, will go back into the mainstream of things to figure out what can possibly cause a protein to misfold. And then you can design drugs to stop that from happening. You can use these molecular uh, simulations to solve everything from uh, Alzheimer's disease to mad cow disease and Parkinson's. And right now they're doing a big heavy push on finding proper uh, drugs that will bind to the SARS-CoV-2 coronavirus. And so uh, a lot of people have been supporting my team on that. And so just a shout out to them, uh, ESS, Parkham Baker, Alessio uh, Giustini, Arctic Penguin, Kick Gas, Mark Blomquist, Craig Kassekert, uh, uh, GH1949, Phil, Phil Clark, NC Chuck, Chris Hand, A-E-I-O-U, fan of vowels there, uh, Human, uh, Troy Hickson, uh, Wick DRT, and Stephen Wampler, all those people currently contributing to this project uh, under my banner, sure. But if you want to support this and continue to support the good that they are trying to do to design drugs for the betterment of humanity, to solve diseases and problems within our biological structures, uh, they're doing a great job. And thank you to everybody there that is supporting that project. All right, I've been talking enough. Now it's time to stay in and shoot. Mm -hmm.